Well, first it was incredible to see Briar get baptized Thursday night. That was amazing. That was awesome. Very cool to see. And I love our church. We posted the notice an hour probably before the baptism. And heaps of people turned up. So I love the church and how they're ready to come out and see people get baptized at a moment's notice. That was great. And Megan and I recently took a trip to Brisbane. And that was a great time. They had a church retreat there. And Megan and I spoke at that. And the, the time with the Hansels and the church in Brisbane was really encouraging and inspiring and refreshing and energizing for Megan and I just to be away and, and spend time with the church. And John and Penny disciple us now. And it was great. We talked about everything, about our ministry, about our, our marriage, about our parenting. We even talked about dinosaurs and aliens. So we covered it all while we were there. It was really inspiring. And, and the Hansels and the church in Brisbane send their love to us in Auckland. And also we were aware of something that we didn't quite know yet until we arrived. And many of you have, have heard of WikiLeaks, right? Most people have heard of WikiLeaks. But we didn't know that there was something in Auckland called Nikki Leaks. Nikki Leaks. Because when, when we got to Brisbane, somehow there had been a leak that I'm often announced as David Lee Bliley from Nick Salamo. And so when I arrived, they said, you know, David Lee Bliley. It was, and of course, it was the Nikki Leaks. So we know that was you, bro. We know that was you. And after church, we played a bit of touch rugby with the boys, which is a, a lot of fun for, for the church and for me, because I've been four years in Auckland now, so I got, you know, tiny bit of touch rugby skills, and there was high expectation, but I think there's higher expectation today for the soccer. Hopefully we'll see that the, the real men come on the field, rain or shine. We'll see how that all works. Also, some good news is Duncan and the team uh, for the Hope, which I know is the John Perez and John Atkins and Brendan and others. Pete, I think, is on that, and Aaron McDonald, and I can't remember who else. Alan Nichols is on there as well. So we submitted an application to be a Hope Youth Corps site, which means students from all over the world would come to New Zealand and participate in Hope Youth Corps. We submitted the application. They worked hard. They worked tremendously hard to put this program together, the budget, the details, down to the last detail. And it was accepted, and people are going to come to New Zealand, which is going to be awesome. So December 2018, we're having a Hope Youth Corps. So pray for that, because now, actually, the real work begins. Yeah, we just presented, here's what we're going to do. Now we got to actually do it. So pray for that. And then tomorrow, I'll actually leave for Chicago in the U.S. I'll be there for a few days as our church, as a fellowship, as a global movement, meets and talks about how we move forward together. Pray for that. There's been a great spirit of collaboration on how we structure our on how we resolve conflict within our movement, on how we handle finances within our movement, on how we communicate within our movement, and how we organize. So all, all of that's being discussed and, and prayed on and, and talked about, and prayerfully some decisions will come out of that. And this side of the world gets some representation. So I'm excited and I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be a part of that, but pray for God's spirit to really move as I know it will. As it has this far. Before we dive into the text, which is John 11, I'd like to look at a quick video that connects us to our movement globally from a story in Kiev. So we'll watch this and then we'll have a lesson from John chapter 11.
That's an incredible story and very inspiring. And keeping in the line of family, my mother arrives to New Zealand for a couple weeks Tuesday. So she'll be here for midweek. I won't be here, though, so you can ask her all the questions about myself that you want to while she's not here, because when I come back, I'll sort it all out. (laughs) John chapter 11. It's 2017 now, but in 2001, there was a particular moment for me where... For the first time, really, ever in life, I I reflected on life and death, both at the same time. Because during that year, in January of 2001, my brother and I went home and we buried my father. He died of a heart attack at age 49. And so, for the first time, I think I was 25 or 26, and, and during that time... I remember thinking long and hard about life and death. And and prior to that, as I said, I never really reflected on it. As I reflected, I I really thought that death doesn't ever get satisfied. Never get satisfied. And in in the Bible, there's a passage in Isaiah chapter 5 that says, It is an appetite that is never satisfied. Death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth into it, will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers. And revelers. And, and it really made me think death doesn't respect anyone. It could be your parents, it could be your child, it could be your spouse. Sometimes it's sudden and sometimes it's slow, or sometimes death might even seem to stalk. And as we've seen on the global scale, death can take away large groups of people with the natural disasters that we've seen in the last weeks, months, and years. Or sometimes it'll just take individuals. As we've seen in the music industry, some some musicians just suddenly end their lives. And, And power and beauty and wealth, they don't bargain with death. It's not able And in the view of the Bible, the Bible will say that death is man's greatest enemy. And that's that's the view of the Bible. But nevertheless, God still has authority over death, which is an inspiring concept. And, And up until this point in the gospel of John, we've heard Jesus say, I am the bread of life. He's fed people with bread, but then he points to himself and says, I am the bread of life. It's not just a general miracle or a general feeding, but it's me. I am the bread. And with the backdrop of the festival, he'll say, I am the light of the world. I am the water that gives this living water. And so he's continually pointing people to himself. And now, as the climax of all these miracles, he'll point to himself and say, I am the resurrection. And I am the life. And although death is unavoidable and unescapable, in Christ, we can even overcome death itself. Because Jesus is the resurrection. Let's pray and read John 11 and look at three points this morning. Father, we are grateful for what you've given us in Christ and what you offer us in Christ. We pray that as we read this this passage and this story, that it doesn't just become something written thousands of years ago, but it comes alive for us. And we help it come alive for others. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read together starting in John chapter 11 verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair, which is in chapter 12. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. 
Now when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it, similar to the healing of the blind man. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. They're really on to it, aren't they? Verse 13, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And Thomas, also called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Loyalty, but kind of a Debbie Downer. Verse 17, On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That's a formal belief that all Jews had. At the end of time, everyone would be resurrected. Some to eternal life, some to not eternal life. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. But Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. She's trying to get some private time with Jesus, but it becomes public as everyone starts to follow. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha said, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for it has been four days. 
Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you have sent me. It's implied there that he's already asked for the life of Lazarus back. Because now he's just saying, thank you, God, for listening to me. He already knew before he even set out, he would raise Lazarus from the dead. When he said this, verse 43, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to him, take off the grave clothes and give him some party clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many people went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. What a story. And what we have here is Jesus calling himself the resurrection and the life. First point this morning, sin and death are the real enemies. Sin and death are the real enemies. Jesus has such great clarity when he enters into this scene and he sees Everything clearly, sin and death are the real issue here. And a few times in this passage, we see Jesus and his response to the death of Lazarus. In verse 33, Mary comes to Jesus and she's weeping. And then these are professional mourners in verse 33. The Jews who had come along with her from Jerusalem. A two mile journey, probably not so close to the family, but perhaps Lazarus and his sisters are well known in this area. So there's a big turnout. They're they're professional mourners. They come to this funeral to do this. They're weeping as well in verse 33. And as a response to this, it says Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. In verse 34, on his way to the tomb where Lazarus is laying, they, they go. And then in verse 35, Jesus weeps. And then in verse 36 and 37, there's some confusion. Some people say, look, he, he really loved Lazarus. And verse 37 says, yeah, but he just healed a blind guy. Why couldn't he stop this guy from dying? There's unbelief. And immediately after in verse 38, Jesus responds to that. 
And it says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came from the tomb. And so we see this this interesting emotion from Jesus. In verse 33, verse 38, moved is the same word. And it, it means, it's what horses do when they snort with anger. And so it's not, it, there, 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 is a, there is an emotion that he loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but it's also a deep agitation. There's also compassion mixed in there in verse 35 as Jesus weeps for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But overall, in this big picture, you, you have to imagine Jesus coming to this scene. People are weeping, weeping and, and he's like agitated. And it's almost as if he's snorting, like just angry and indignant, but at the same time, compassionate. Now, only Jesus has that perfect blend, all right? So, but here he is in this scene, and, and, and overall, as he sees everything, his, his compassion and his anger are aroused because he knows what has just placen, taken place, death. And it starts, it really starts to arouse him. And, and, and if, you, if you see this from a distance, it's Jesus coming face to face with mankind's greatest enemy. And he knows the consequences of sin. He knows the consequences of death. And now he's facing it face to face and he'll overcome it. And I love what Paul writes later as he reflects on all of these concepts and ideas. In Romans 5.14, Paul says that death reigned from the time of Adam. Romans 5.21, it says that sin reigned in death. 1 Corinthians 15.26, Paul says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so Jesus here in this scene is, is facing the real issue. The real enemy. And this compassion and anger both perfectly blended. And Paul looks back on it and says, this points to the final climax of the gospel story. Because Jesus on the cross will eventually conquer and overcome death. And Paul says from this point on, it is no longer enemy. Jesus has overcome. Jesus has conquered. And this is a big deal because Jesus and Paul, both, both they see sin and death as the real issue. And if that's true for them, it should be true for us. And it it makes sense in our our everyday lives because it's not about the system. It's not about the political structure. It's not about the staff. Or it's not about any of these systems that are in place. It's all about sin and death. They are the real enemies. And we could focus on the wrong things and we could choose to fight the wrong battle. But the real battle is against sin and death. And Jesus sees this clearly. And when he walks into this, he's, he's, he's angry, but he's at the same time, he's compassionate. Now, it's difficult to have this blend of emotion in our own lives. We don't really swing one way or the other, but here's a few ways this needs to apply into our everyday lives. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 11 says that we should have indignation. Paul describes a response to to the cross and he says we should be indignant. Similar feeling to what Jesus feels here. And, and, and the point of that in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11, is that there should be an anger that, that drives us when we sin against God. 
It's an engine toward our change. That doesn't mean necessarily you have to feel this every day. You wake up and feel indignant like you're snorting at your sin. But at, at pivotal points in our lives, we should feel indignation at our sin. And I had to examine my life. When is the last time I felt like that toward my sin toward God? And it's a question that requires reflection for all of us. Again, not, not to, to, to do daily or even weekly, but at, at certain times in our life, there needs to be this indignation, this similar response, so that we can change. It also is needed in our fellowship as well. In Mark 10, Jesus sees his disciples, and, and they don't want to let kids come and see Jesus. And Jesus is indignant. And he rebukes his disciples and says, no, let him come to me. And, and I believe this is, this is another way this applies in our lives as well. Not all the time, but there needs to be times where we get indignant at other people's sin. You know, but we, we need to start with ourselves just to make that clear. But there, there is a time where we just can't be, oh, it's going to be okay. But there has to be indignation. And when other people see that, then they realize, oh, this is actually a big deal. When the disciples saw how angry Jesus was, they probably thought, oh, we, I guess we did something wrong. And at times we need that in our own fellowship. It also is necessary with the world. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those. I long to gather your children together as, as chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And now your house is going to be destroyed. And so Jesus, as he looks out, feels like, ah, I, I, I want to save you, but you're not willing. There needs to be an indignation at a lost world and their sin as well. Sin and death are the real enemies, not the system, not the structure. Jesus understood that. We must understand it as well. Secondly, Jesus came to give life. Jesus comes to give life. And leading up until this, he's done cool miracles. He's, he's fed thousands of people with the festival of lights and water in the backdrop. He says, I am the light of the world. I give living water. Now he's, this is the finale where he's going to raise somebody from the dead. And he's making a point with this miracle. When he hears about the news, in verse 6, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea. And by the time he arrives, in verse 17, it says that Lazarus has been in the tomb Four days already. So the way this works is they would have sent word to Jesus. And almost as soon as the messenger left, Lazarus would have died. He stays two more days. He takes a trip into Bethany. Then comes to back. And by the time he gets there, he's been in the tomb four days. And why that detail? Is that important? In, in early literature for rabbis, they thought... I don't know if it's true or not, but this is at least what they thought, and it influences this, that when you died, your spirit hovered over your body for three days, hoping to, to try to re-enter it. But after it sees that life has gone out, on the fourth day, it doesn't try to re-enter the body. And so, four days is, you're done. Done and dusted. No coming back from that. And so that's why it's, it's Jesus knows at the very beginning, almost, I'm going to wait until there's, there's absolute clarity. 
There's going to be no question in anyone's mind. No one's going to misinterpret this as I just performed CPR. No one's going to misinterpret this like I just brought a defibrillator, an anachronism, and suddenly brought him back to life. And then when he talks to Mary and Martha, he says in verse 35, not in verse 35, verse 25, I am the resurrection. And they thought, yeah, I, I know, I know it's someday in the future, Lazarus will come back. And Jesus says, I am going to do it right now. I am the resurrection and the life. And you have to imagine all of these characters in this story. You have to imagine the vantage point of the disciples. They're there with Jesus when they get the news, Lazarus is sick. And none of us would respond as Jesus does. Your family's sick and you respond, that's great. We're going to stay a couple more days before we jump on a plane and go help. And, and they had to see, what, what is going on here? And, and then it, with, with the arrival of Jesus, and, and you see him kind of get agitated, and you see his, his compassion, and then the voice of God through Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And it's the voice that brought everything into existence. And all of these things combined, and Jesus, he, he will publicly display his power over death in front of everyone. And, and, you know, magicians, I, I like watching magicians on television. They have a bunch of cool tricks. But I've never, I've never seen any, anyone walk into a cemetery, speak to someone six feet under, and that person come out of the grave. That has never happened. Nor will it ever happen. This guy is definitely dead. It's not like he, he asked for a volunteer that was planted in the, in the fellowship, right? This is Jesus clearly raising someone from the dead. And it's allusion to his own resurrection where he will raise to life and give life to everyone. And we know this is, is all about Jesus and his ability to bring life. Because what's absent from this story? All the details from Lazarus. If I, if I, as I read this, I, I want to hear what Lazarus has to say. Hey, bro, what was it like in that tomb? What was it like those four days? What did you, what was going on, man? What did you see? What did you hear? How did it happen? Like, there's nothing from Lazarus. I would, we all would have been asking him heaps of questions. But there's nothing. It's all about Jesus and his ability to bring life. That's his role. That's his point. That's what Jesus does in this story. Lazarus, come out. And he brings him to life. This is the way that they would bury corpses in the ancient Near East. They would have a strip of linen that was twice as long as a body and wide as long, twice as long as wide as your body. So what they would do is they would lay the body on the sheet and then they would wrap it twice, lengthwise, and then they would wrap it around you, widthwise. And then you'll see they have the straps around the feet, around the hands, and around your neck. And so the body is placed in there, and then it's bound with another cloth over the head. And so th- this, is, this is the same way that Jesus would have been buried when he's buried in the tomb. And so it's actually quite a tight costume. <laughs> And so, now, yeah, so when, when Lazarus gets out of the grave, he, you know, he, he can't really 
I mean, he's kind of like shuffling. It's comical, but it's, it's, it was crazy at the same time, right? Because he's bound and he can't, he can't really break free. And that's why Jesus says, man, get him out of those clothes. Let him break free. He's alive. He's not bound anymore. Now, in contrast, interestingly enough, Jesus is buried the same way, right? But when they come to the tomb, where are his clothes? Neatly folded. That's awesome. You know, he doesn't have to shuffle. He just, he he breaks free of the clothes. Let me fold them up just to make it crystal clear. I'm out of here. Jesus came to give life. And that, 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 we should wake up with this impression every day. This is, this is a bold thing. If you read through the book of Acts, Peter mentions the resurrection over and over and over again when he preaches. He says, Jesus died, but then he was raised to life, and I'm a witness. Next chapter, Jesus died, and he was raised to life, and I saw it. Next chapter, over and over and over again, there's this connection. Jesus gives life, and it should impact us in our outreach. On a very simple level, imagine being Lazarus in the story you had to tell. And then they try to kill him again in chapter 12, poor guy. But just think about it. You come back to life, you say, hey, you know what? Let's talk about good news. You know, I met this person, I, I met this person, and my daughter got baptized. That's awesome. My daughter got all the, And then, hey guys, I just came back to life. I mean, that, that, that's the kind of attitude Jesus wants us to have. At the end of the book of Acts... Paul is on trial because of his belief in the resurrection. That's Acts chapter 23. They put him on trial. He says, yes, I believe Jesus gives life. I believe we will come back to life. And that should impact us. Imagine you coming back to life. How would you live your life starting differently tomorrow? It would be drastically different. Be drastically. It varies where you are. And in your life stage, but it impacts us in very real ways. However, there is a catch. The Bible says this kind of life is only available for those who believe in Jesus. Revelation 26, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. They'll be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. If you're not yet in Christ, you don't get to experience this resurrection life. But it is an incentive to research, believe, and follow Jesus. To come back to life. That's what Jesus comes to give. That's what he offers. Third and lastly this morning, believing in Jesus is a choice. It is a choice. Thanks, Nikki Leakes. John uses this account, if you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they use a different thrust to trigger the death of Jesus. They don't include the story of Lazarus in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. But in John, after Jesus heals Lazarus or brings him back from the dead, that triggers the plot to kill Jesus. And and so in this chapter, you have these two contrasting characters. You have Mary and Martha, who in verse 21 and 32, they both say to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, then, then Lazarus wouldn't have died. And so it's not like a rebuke. It's a disappointment. It's, they're grieving, right? And, and they, but they still believe somewhat. They still believe generally that their brother will come back at the last day. But Jesus responds to all of this and he says, but I am the resurrection. And the life. 
do you believe this? Do you believe this? And they're not quite, yes, we do, we believe, but they're not piecing together that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus right there and right now. They're thinking, yeah, I know generally, I know vaguely, I know generically that there's something that happens in the end of time. I don't know how it all happens. And, and, I, and I still believe you can do this. But then when he says, do you believe I am the resurrection and the life? She says, yes, Lord, I do. You are the Messiah. So there's a choice involved of her saying, yeah, I, I believe these general things, but I believe specifically in you. I believe personally in you. And there's a difference between this generic Jesus is Lord and this personal Jesus is Lord. Yeah. And that's what's going on here. In verse 39 through 41, there's, there's kind of a, an obvious objection to taking away the stone. Jesus comes on the scene and says, take away the stone. And they say, bad idea, there's a bad odor. And, and Jesus says, but, but didn't I tell you that you would see the glory of God? And then in verse 41, they choose, okay. Okay, we'll believe. Take away the stone. So see this choosing to believe. And then in contrast, unbelievable. The Pharisees and the chief priests, in verse 47, they call a meeting. And it's basically, what are we doing, man? This guy's doing all kind of signs. And if he keeps going, we're going to lose our power. I mean, can, can they not... Just understand that a man has been raised from the dead. Can't, can't they? If that happens, wouldn't you be caused to re-examine your stance about Jesus? He's just raised a dead man to life. But they're more afraid about their power and their prestige being taken. They choose to reject. Mary and Martha choose to believe. The Pharisees and the chief priests choose to reject. A simple statement captures this sentiment. If you try to sit on two chairs, you'll fall between them. For life, you must choose one chair. And, and there's, there's a truth in that, right? You know, you, you can't just generically choose to believe lots of different things. You have to personally decide to believe and follow Jesus. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're interested in God or curious about God, you have a choice. To, to read a gospel and make a decision about Jesus. You can believe it or you can reject it. But you have the choice. It's not forced on you by anyone. You are responsible. And in the end, all of these responses about we need proof for God and the existence of God and this, etc. Those are all just smoke screens to say, I choose to reject. But you still have a choice. And for Christians, I believe as we age as Christians or even in our youth, we still have to choose to follow Jesus on a daily basis. It's a conscious decision. It's a conscious, deliberate effort to follow Jesus. And we all have that choice to follow or to reject in conclusion, there's a passage in Isaiah chapter 25 that describes all of these things tied in together. In the beginning, we talked about how death is the great enemy of mankind. But Jesus comes on the scene and he sees very clearly his role and his responsibility to overcome death. And in Isaiah chapter 25, it refers to this. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. 
He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. It will go on to say on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a rich feast for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Death is swallowed up forever. Those who believe and are in Christ, wine and dine for eternity. That's awesome. That's such an incredible scene. And through Jesus, God gives us this chance of resurrection and life. The real enemies are sin and death. Jesus came to give life to all of us, and we can offer this same life to others. Let us choose to believe, to personally follow Jesus, pointing others to Jesus as well, so He can grant them life. Amen. Amen.